Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship this morning. Turn to the Lucan Gospel. There's a Bible there in the right in front of you if you didn't bring one with you. We're going to look at a lot of text today. It's a, a good series to have your Bible open. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. We're beginning a new series today in the Lucan Gospel that will take us to Resurrection Sunday, to Easter Sunday. It's a 13-week series. I'm going to ask you to commit yourself to being here and hearing every sermon from the Gospel of Luke that you may know the exact truth about Jesus. That's exactly why Luke wrote this book. So join me today committing yourself to hear each of these sermons as we go on a journey together through the Gospel of Luke. I, I hope you'll be here each week as we study this magnificent Lucan Gospel. Well, we begin with an introduction. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished among us, just as those who from beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out to you in a consecutive order. Most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. He writes this gospel that somebody named Theophilus may know the exact truth about Jesus. Now, you go to any bookstore, coffee shop, bookstore combo, and you'll notice curious readers combing through the jackets of the books in search of their next great read. Because we invest a lot of energy and time digesting the drama of a new book, we want to make sure that this long literary journey will be worth all the time and effort. We don't want to end up at a dead-end destination. You've all been there. You buy a book. It sounds good. You get halfway through it and say, eh, it's not going anywhere, is it? We, we studied that, and every marketer knows you have just 30 seconds in the coffee shop for someone to look at the book jacket and get hooked, and then they'll begin to read the book and, and go to the contents inside. Well, ancient books like Luke didn't have that chance. There was no book jacket. They were rolled up tight on a scroll. And so the ancient writer had to capture you with the first few words. You enroll the top of the scroll, that was your book jacket. You read the first few words, you're hooked or you're not. Well, Luke does no less with this gospel. He tells us that he's going to give us a new account about Jesus, that he's read the other accounts, he's talked to the eyewitnesses, and now he's giving us an orderly sequence of the truth about Jesus, the precise truth so that Theophilus will know. Now, Luke presents himself as an investigator who carefully weighs and tests all that he's been taught and told concerning Jesus. He wants you to be confident. He's a physician, Luke is. He wants you to know he's done his homework. He's done his research and yet, having read all the other accounts he could get his hands on about Jesus, now he's going to give us a new account that builds upon the previous works and presents the truth about Jesus. Well, look at what he says in verse 2. 
The other accounts have been handed down by eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. The word for Luke is this. It is the good news about Jesus and the hope of the resurrection. It is the good news about Jesus and the hope of the resurrection. We've been handed down this word by eyewitnesses, and now Luke presents the good word to us. Well, he gives us two words in verse 3 to describe his gospel. He says, it's carefully and orderly done. He didn't throw it together. He's a physician. He's a man of exacting standards. He's studied. He's talked to the eyewitnesses. He's poured over it all, and he's written carefully and thus also orderly. He's going to give us the events of the life of Jesus in a sequential order so we can have an enlightened and full understanding of everything about this ancient rabbi Jesus. Now, to whom does he write? Well, we learn that he writes to Theophilus in verse 3. Some people think this name is just symbolic. It, it means lover of God. That's Theo and Philos, you get it together, lover of God. It is the one who loves God. But I don't think so. It is written to the most excellent Theophilus. This is not just any lover of God. This is a man named Theophilus, a common name, but he is he is almost probably a, a Roman official, maybe a political official. The title most excellent lifts him up. He might be the one who paid for Luke's research and publication of the book. He may be the patron of this work. I've done all this work. You paid for it, Theophilus, and now I'm giving it over to you. Here is my research that you asked me to do that you could know the real truth about Jesus. That's the book jacket, and now we begin. The first thing I want you to see, the large section, from verse 5 to 25, Luke 1, 5 through 25, from the barren, John will be born. From the barren, John will be born. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, all of a sudden, Luke gives us his story in a specific time and place. And that happens when he uses the name Herod. This particular Herod reigned from 37 to 4 B.C. From 37 to 4 B.C. Now think toward the later part of Herod's reign. So 4 or 5 B.C. is where this story starts about Jesus. 4 or 5 B.C. So it's a specific time and it's a specific place. It's under the reign and the rule of Herod. That means it's Galilee, Judea, Samaria, the places where Herod was king and beyond. And now we get our first character of the book, a certain priest named Zacharias. He was of the eighth of the divisions of the priesthood, 24 divisions. And what's interesting as well is that his wife Elizabeth is also from priestly stock. She is, notice, from the daughters of Aaron, her name is Elizabeth. 
He wants us to know that they are both from priestly stock and they are righteous. And we fall in love with this humble character at the beginning of the story, Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. And then we have the first tragedy of the story. Zacharias and Elizabeth don't have a baby boy. They don't have a baby at all. The first tragedy is that Elizabeth is barren. Now, this idea of an older barren couple ought to be ringing bells in your head. How many times have you heard this story in the Old Testament? Right? Think of them. Abraham and Sarah, God acts and they have Isaac. Jacob and Rachel, God acts and they have Joseph. Manoah and his wife. I'll give you a minute to think about that one. Anybody know Manoah and his wife? Samson, they have Samson. Elkanah and Hannah, they have Samuel, of course. And so when you, you read, know the Old Testament, when you get to the story of an old couple that wants a baby and doesn't have one, uh-oh, surprise, surprise, we know it's on its way. Well, look at verse 8. And now it came about that while Zacharias was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the time of incense. Now, this probably, for Zacharias, was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You didn't go a lot. In fact, they drew straws to see who would get to go into the temple to perform this priestly service. And the reason they drew straws was this. Then you knew what? God was in control. God had made the choice. So you can be sure that Luke wants you to know that they drew straws and Zacharias was chosen and the people are outside praying. It was an awesome responsibility to go into the presence of the Lord. It was a scary thing and all men didn't make it in the presence of a righteous God. So Zacharias is chosen by God by the drawing of straws and the people pray as he enters the holy place, as he enters the temple. Well, we have a divine visitation in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing right at the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. He tells us it's the place of honor, the right side. It's in the sacred space near the altar that this is a divine appointment, that temple that connects heaven and earth, that sacred holy space that the priest goes into, and there he meets the angel of the Lord. This is our very busy angel at Christmas time, and this is trip number one. As was common, when men find themselves in divine presence, they are afraid, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and he is afraid. And thus the first words, verse 13, for the angel are, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Fear not. As is often in Luke's gospel, God has heard your prayers, and God is answering your prayers. Now, 
Lisa sees the opportunity to name all of our children. The only power I had was veto power. So if she came up with something like Gertrude Gladys or Beulah Bertha, then I guess I could have said veto, that's not going to happen. But in the good old days, when things were as they should have been, the fathers named the children. And so it doesn't matter what Elizabeth thinks. Zacharias gets to name the child. And interestingly enough, in this one, it is the heavenly father, God himself, who gives the name John. You will call him John. And John means Yahweh is merciful. Yahweh is merciful. Well, then we learn some things in verses 15 through 17 about the prophet. First of all, we learn that he is pleasing to the Lord, meaning he will do whatever the Lord asks of him. And then we learn that he's not to be controlled by strong drink, but rather, secondly, he's controlled by the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, we learn that he's filled with the Holy Spirit even while he's in the womb, that he may kick in the presence of the arrival of Mary with Jesus within her. And fourth, he is to call Israel back. To call Israel back. Look at verse 16. He will, he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And like Elijah before him, he comes in the spirit of Elijah. He will bring a message of judgment to disobedient Israel. Well, verses 18 through 20. And Zacharias said to the angel, verse 18, How can I know this is for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, the one who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak in the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled at the proper time. You've heard of doubting Thomas, but have you heard of prove it to me Zacharias? That's who he is. Prove it to me, Zacharias. I'm an old man. My wife's an old woman. These things don't happen. How can I know for sure that we're going to have a son? Now the anonymous angel declares his name. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. He's none other than the Gabriel of Daniel who's in the mysteries of God and then he says, I stand in the presence of God. My word is the word of God. And I have come, notice, to bring good news. I have come to bring good news. Well, the good news, of course, will ultimately lead to the good news of the birth of Jesus. But here it means the inbreaking kingdom of God. God is working through John and Jesus. I bring you the good news. You want a sign? You get a sign. He says, you won't be able to speak. Until this baby John is born, you will not be able to utter a single word. On verse 21, the people are out there praying and waiting for Zacharias. They think that something might have happened because he's taken longer than the priests usually take. And it is scary to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And he comes out and they can tell he's had a vision of God and he is not 
able to speak to them. They know that he has seen a sign. He is speechless. His speechlessness is a sign of two things. The baby will come, but also that Zacharias didn't believe. That the baby will come, but also, sadly enough, that Zacharias did not believe. We'll look at verse 24. And after those days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace upon men. In complete contradiction to her husband's hesitation, she finds the favor with faith. In complete contradiction to her husband's hesitation, she takes God's favor in faith. But now the question is, how will Israel respond? Will Israel respond like Zacharias in disbelief? Or will Israel respond in faith like Elizabeth? The second big, big part of the saga, point two, from a virgin, Jesus will be born. From the barren, John will come forth. But secondly, from the virgin, Jesus will be born. Look at verse 26. And now the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Following his orderly account about Zacharias and Elizabeth, we finally get to this very busy angel, to the moment we have waited for when we get to, to Mary. There she is. She will bear the very Son of God. And they're connected. Look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. Does that help you date it? So six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, now, well, a family member, Mary, is told that she, though a virgin, will bear a son. Now, we see the similarities, of course, but I want you to know there's a lot of differences. In the first story, we have a married woman who feels disgraced by her barrenness, and she's longing and prayed and given up on having a baby. But in the second occasion, Mary is not married. She's a virgin. She has no expectation of a child, and she's caught completely by surprise at the announcement. So there's quite a few differences as well. And while both boys, John and Jesus, are messengers of God, there's no doubt in the narrative which one is secondary and which one is primary. John comes as a forerunner to make ready the way of the Lord, but the second baby is the Messiah, the Lord himself. Well, you might hear sometimes that someone will say that the virgin birth really isn't in Scripture all that much. Well, that's really not true. And in case you had any doubts, it's used three times in this first narrative. Verse 27, we're told twice that she is a virgin. We are told again in verse 34 that she is a virgin. It calls to our minds the, the prophet Isaiah, 
behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So it's in the old narrative, it's in the new narrative. I'm not sure when someone makes that discovery, but it's right here. The word clearly in the Greek text means that she has not been with a man. She's engaged. It was formal. It would have taken a divorce to end it, but at no stage of the engagement were they to be together physically. Well, she has a special task. Verse 28, hell favored one. Verse 29, she was greatly troubled, this statement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God took her up from her lowliness and lifted her up to a place of favor. And he tells her in verse 31 through 33 that you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. You're going to name him Jesus and he will be great. He will be the son of the Most High. Most High is a euphemism for God, a respectful term for God. He is the son of God. He will take the throne of David. You remember that Samuel had told David that he would have a, a covenant of kingship that would last forever. And Jesus is a final Davidic king that will reign absolutely forever. He is the final king. Verse 34, Mary gives us a response of faith. Not like Zachariah who didn't believe, Zacharias who didn't believe. Mary accepts a proclamation and yet she ponders verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this happen since I'm a virgin? Unlike any other child, Gabriel answers, our busy angel, it will be the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that causes this child to be. Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, don't you worry. I know your state. I know you're not yet wed, but this child is different. This child is caused to be by the power of the Holy Spirit for great words in Luke's gospel. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Isn't it interesting, at the beginning of the story of Jesus, his conception, it is caused by God. At the end of the story, after his death, his resurrection is caused by the power of the Spirit of God, both in his conception and his resurrection from the death. Nothing will be impossible with God. This is a different kind of boy, Mary. Mary accepts. She didn't ask for any more proof like Zacharias. She accepts that nothing is impossible with God. But I want you to note, the angel departs. New Testament scholar Brown says, such a heavenly presence has to be temporary the departing of the angel means that the angel does not hover over her pathway. He, doesn't, he isn't always there to comfort her. He doesn't explain to her her perplexing doubts in the future. 
Mary faces the reality that being chosen as a messenger of God does not guarantee an easy journey of faith, for it is often a winding and troubling road. Mary believes, the angel informs, but the angel leaves. And the walk of faith for Mary is one that she ponders and wonders. And even as she stands at the the foot of her crucified son's cross, the aching heart of Mary. You're favored, you're chosen, Mary. But it will not be an easy journey to which you have been called. Our God is the God of the impossible. He causes the virgin to conceive. He raises the dead to life. With him, the axe head floats and the rivers stand on edge and the water bursts forth from a desert rock. Do you believe, Luke? Do you believe the account of the physician, Luke, who's done his research and talked to the eyewitnesses? Are you ready for a story to unwind the scroll as we go and discover that nothing is impossible with God. And yet, that doesn't mean it'll be an easy journey. That doesn't mean that the journey won't go its winding way. It doesn't mean there might be some hardship along the road. Let us pray. Oh God, we open up this book and wander in amazement as we begin to journey down the gospel of Luke, where we discover, O God, indeed, that you have been at work in the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, and all of the history of humanity will change about what happened in the time of Herod in the area of Galilee and in Jerusalem itself with John. Oh, God, give us your grace today as we begin this journey. And and maybe there's someone who would come today and say, "I, I need that kind of God. A God who hears the cries of his people and a God who's able to overcome the impossible. The impossibility of my doubt. The impossibility of my struggle. My loneliness. My uncertainty. In the name of Jesus, we pray.